We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Fucking thing sucks. TikTok is a social media thing, right? Yeah. What what makes it so crazy is that you could have one follower or you could have a million followers and the app algorithm basically determines whether to serve your content to other people. I mean, I guess all platforms work that way, but it's even more undefined. That's why like you could just go on there and post something that's pro-Palestine and they could just decide not to show it to anybody or they could show it to however many people they want. It's a very weird, and now it's become like all advertisements like they all do. Yeah, it's not like Twitter is any better. I think I was telling Evan about this experiment that I was thinking about before Elon Musk did his whole breakdown of Twitter, of trying to create like an argument about why being on Twitter is either good or bad for some sort of social movement or articulating ideology, and it just being like a, a long-form discovery but then, as everything exploded, just... Something. Hey, man. You got frozen? Yeah, mid-sentence. <laughs> I thought it was my computer. Me too. I think I broke my toe. Got ice on it under my desk here. It's excruciating. I'm glad I have the backup bot to show that to uh, Brandon later, because he did that on one of our episodes. One of the first ones I ever recorded with him. Just froze up? Or broke his toe. Broke his toe. Broke his oh. toe. Dude, the AOC face, man. I just, I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I can't it's get like, enough of it. She's like, shut the fuck up, please. Don't ask me about my Tesla. You were quoted back in July saying you look forward to buying a union-made electric vehicle. But you buy, but you currently have a non-union-made Tesla. UAW already makes some electric vehicles. So yes. why wasn't that? Is it a problem with the the quality? Is it a problem with the style? Is the market just not there? Uh, no, the, our car was purchased uh, during the pandemic when travel mass, before a, a vaccine had come out. So travel between New York and Washington, the safest way that we had determined was an EV, but that was prior to um, some of the new models coming out on the market that had the range available. Uh, but we're actually looking into trading in our car now so we're looking into it and hopefully we will soon <laughs> speaking of accounts on tiktok that get really big following is people who like i left the left and now i'm you know a right-wing conservative and then they just get followers just galore that's Isn't like like that keffels or whatever yeah there's a lot of Kevles people like that i think keffels just went liberal mm. so she went right-wing then i mean it's funny, like, I don't keep up with any of that stuff, but I just am vaguely aware of, like, Destiny and, of course, Vouch. Yeah. And, obviously, Hassan is, like, cool. Um, and then you got, like, the really, the good tanky ones, like, the people, all the people on the Did Program podcast and, like, right. and Panada. Um, But there's all those other, like, personalities that are, like, vaguely political sometimes. Um, then there's all the bread tube that, I, again, just don't really keep an eye on. I posted in my Discord, and then someone else posted it, like, a couple weeks later this whole 25 minute breakdown of like this plan 2025 that peter Thiel and all these conservatives are doing to replace all these government positions with their cronies and enact this like nationwide plan of conservative uh policy and it sounds really dangerous and coordinated and also somewhat plausible and then at the very end her whole thing is just like look i don't like joe biden but we have to just vote blue no matter who and like it's just oh. a desperate plea to, and i was like oh fuck you like one if i thought that 
the Republicans and the right would be able to genuinely pull all that off, maybe I'd consider voting for Democrats. And then also, if I thought the Democrats would stop that from happening, rather than like allow it to happen and then use it for fundraising and vote opportunities like the next election cycle, which they absolutely would do, given precedent. Yeah. Some of those bread tubers are, they bring you in and then I think they, they don't usually move left. They usually slide in a lot of right wing content. I see people I know posting or telling me to watch them. And then I watch the video they, they tell me to watch or something. And it, it's very slyly and carefully crafted. It's not usually very left or it's using left language. Guess what they all are on Israel and Palestine and also Ukraine and Russia. Like, Yeah, that's so bad. I was on, a, for some God knows why reason, I was on Our Destiny, the Reddit thread. Oh, and sick. it's awful, dude. I mean, it was just this awful thread. But the title of the thread called Hassan Hamas Piker, which, I mean, you know, based or whatever. But yeah, like, fantastic. Yeah, but like... Obviously, they they mean it from like a very derogatory, unprincipled position. And man, like the discussion in there was just so bad. Like they call themselves like these reasonable, you know, Destiny's the fucking worst, man. He's so elitist and he thinks like, oh, I'm somebody that like actually like de-radicalizes right wingers and Nazis or something. And I don't know all that much about him. I've just watched a couple clips, but like his comfort and ability to just kind of obfuscate and just navigate within like the comfortable status quo. And then you can take that and just try to present yourself as somebody that actually wants change and wants something better and actually knows it all. Like he's a disgrace. Yeah. He's really disgusting. His fans are even worse and they turn really hard, right at the drop of a hat. Like if you go into the subreddit, if you engage with any of them, if you try to like spout any talking point that is factual and supports a Marxist-Leninist position or historical materialist position in any way, they're not shy about slurs. They think of a fuck, dude. Like, they're just a, a bunch of fucking chuds with barely mm-hmm. any veil over it whatsoever, as every neoliberal subreddit is. Yeah, no. I mean, and those people are just, they're not a force for progress in any sense of the word. I mean, again, and we're not just basing it off of, like, the Destiny subreddit, but anybody, there's a lot of people that imbibe in that brand of politics, whether it's online or not. And they're, like... They're they're on the enemy right now. I mean, I want to distinguish between like progressive liberals and I mean I think that actually probably like segs into what we can talk about a little bit just in terms of like the Palestine movement within the US right now. Just because I, I mean we've been seeing a lot of these mass mobilizations, right? Uprisings in solidarity with Palestine all across the world and especially over the US for the past two weeks. And I mean I think it's really I mean, it's obviously really great to see thousands of people walking through New York or wherever with Palestinian flags. And I think a lot of these people are coming out just really on a humanitarian level because you can't really ignore what you're being faced with. You know, like if, if you're paying attention at all, you have to see this at some level. And I think there's a lot of people that probably have. And I think Brandon was talking about this as well. You know, they've had a critique, a maybe not very principled critique of Israel in the past. And maybe there was a little bit of squeamishness about the resistance fighting back. But I think people, as they continue to be faced with the atrocities that are going on, feel like they have to take some kind of political action at some level, right? And I want to say that while we definitely shouldn't be like decentering the Palestinian struggle at all or anything like that, but I think like a key thing that we can do to actually help Palestinians, aside from just, you know, donating, platforming voices, that's all very good. But like a strong socialist 
anti-imperialist movement within the U.S. like by default helps the Palestinian struggle as well. You know, so I don't know. We've just been talking a lot about um, people that we've met coming out into the streets and really developing like a clear political line, right? And I think it's like our role to like meet people where they're at because they're coming out to the streets on these humanitarian grounds, right? But then you can't just have like four rallies and then all of this energy dissipates into nothing, right? Like you need to continue to advance the line. I was thinking a lot about like the mass line this week as we've been talking about these people and you're meeting people where they're at because they're seeing human suffering, right? And then how do you, you know, not push away the masses in that moment? But how do you advance the struggle and develop a sharper political line with more people involved in it, you know, that would actually be able to go to Washington, D.C. and articulate clear demands around a ceasefire, a clear demand to the end. I mean, what I wanted to say was not just a clear demand of a ceasefire, but a clear demand of the end to the occupation and an end to all U.S. aid to Israel because it's part of this imperialist project, you know. So, I don't know. That's just kind of stream of consciousness. But I think there's a real fight here, a real political fight here in the streets right now. And we don't want to see it kind of dissipate. Um, And I think we have an opportunity here to grow a left movement and also, more importantly, support the Palestinians effectively, too, on top of everything else that we can do. I mean, we, we talked about this in our episode with you, Nick, and Levi last week. I don't know, maybe it was towards the end about what, you know, sometimes it's hard to have a conversation with someone online or even in person or a friend about like the principles of communism or socialism. But I feel like this humanitarian crisis is like a good starting point to talk to people about things in maybe a different way through a different approach that you might get through to them because they do see eye to eye immediately with something. They can see the suffering. Sometimes it's harder to, you know, I'm not just going to walk into someone on the street and just start quoting capital to them. They'll, they'll laugh at you. But if you can talk about, you know, the, these things, and I, I think back too about the Iraq war protests and how kind of little, you know, I, I, I don't feel like that ever really materialized into much thinking back on it. Granted, I wasn't, you know, what I considered myself a leftist then. So I don't, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there were people organizing right after that. Yeah, so I think what I'm hearing Nick say is that there's really two big things going on here at once. And the first I see is, how do we get people to think beyond going back to the status quo as Mm -hmm. the end point? We don't want people to just think, oh, we need to go back to the way Israel was treating Palestine 10 years ago, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, before Netanyahu. We need them to think about how fundamentally the whole system is built on fraud. And I think people are getting there. People are looking up information about Israel and getting really suspicious of the state line that's being said about what Israel is and where it's been. I think more people are starting to learn the word Nakba, and I think that's really breaking down a lot of barriers. And then the second, I think, is how do we articulate getting people beyond that to even thinking on an international scale beyond Palestine. So not to diminish what's going on in Palestine, but to also help them make connections to this is what's happening in Niger. This is what's happening in Ukraine. This is what's happening all over the world. This is what's going to be told to you about Taiwan. Once you have that suspicion of the state line, maybe you can pull people even further and say, this whole system is predicated on a specific history that doesn't contort to reality. 
And this is why it doesn't contort to reality. And this is how you can start breaking down that narrative and how it sort of brings all of these things together. I didn't have enough time to collect any material on this because uh, I just thought of this today. It just kind of occurred to me. But I want to look up media from like contemporary media, newspaper articles or whatever people would have been reading at the time of previous decolonial struggles and see what colonizer media was saying about specifically instances of violence, acts of militance, uh, any kind of struggle that may or may not have been effective, but really terrified the colonizers and the settlers. Um, I want to see what they said, and I want to see if they said similar things like, oh, this is now just going to provoke uh, further violence, or this is going to provoke a full-on genocide. And if that still is the case where it ignores that that was what was already going on, just uh, kind of under cloak and dagger. Um, I just have a hunch that that's the case. And that, I think that is kind of also what makes it more difficult to explain to people that the materialist solution is the real one and the most effective one. Because I think that's the frustration we run into with liberals who, like you say, Nick, they're coming from a good place. Like they see suffering, they see innocent people suffering, and they want to do something good. But it's hard for them to realize that the quickest way to end that suffering would be to side with the decolonizers who are ironically doing the act of violence that you seem to think is unprovoked because you weren't paying attention to the struggle until now, because you're only following, again, the Western narrative. And it's rough because you come off like you're saying the same thing over and over again to people because your message is consistent. And it's consistently not congruent with what they're hearing from Western media. And then they just end up siding with that and end up being wrong for decades, sometimes on end, and then end up coming around and saying, oh, yeah, actually, we were wrong to invade Afghanistan and Iraq and stuff. It's like, yeah, it's too late now, but why don't you then apply that lesson to the current situation? Like, I'm begging liberals, please, to do that. No, I was just going to say, and like to the point, I have two points real quick, to the point about how resistance movements have been framed. I mean, you're absolutely right to say that they've always been denounced in whatever media existed at the time that was run by the occupier, the oppressor, right? I mean, and you don't have to look that much farther than Palestine itself, when it, even in the British mandate period. I'm reading right now, it's the 1936 through 39 revolution, Palestinian revolution by Ghassan Kanafani, right? Like this famous Palestinian author, activist. And he's talking about that initial uprising in 1936, and it was one of the leaders that emerged out of that, one of the first martyrs of the Palestinian movement was Al-Qassam, who the Al-Qassam brigades, I'm assuming, are named after, right? And when the British troops reported back about like this initial uprising, Al-Qassam was framed as a terrorist, right? But this was a guy who saw that, you know, the accommodationist leadership was failing them, and the people wanted something different. They wanted land sales to stop, right? So he was part of the genesis of this movement. And the British called him a terrorist, you know? And this guy was just kind of seeing the writing on the wall. So, I mean, again, that's always been the case. And you can look directly into the history of the struggle to find an example of that. Second, just to continue on the through line of what people are calling for right now and why we need a political alternative, just to call it exactly what we need right now. I mean, at the best end, and I want to be clear, like, obviously, a ceasefire just in terms of human lives right now would be a good thing, you know, just to stop the suffering. But it needs to be a ceasefire and, right? But like the most people can see within a political institution right now, like the very best that the Democrats can put forth is ceasefire. That's it. There's no articulation of what happens after that to Levi's point. There's no articulation of the end to apartheid, the 
end to the Nakba. So, yeah, the, I mean, solution, again, the solution for them is putting the lid back on the boiling pot and holding it down with all their force and, and hoping that it can brunch. stay that way at least until the next election to get people back to brunch, to get people back to the calm. Yeah. And like, and this is in a similar way, like why we need to do that. We also need to get this denunciations of the resistance out. Like at this point, the Palestinian people have chosen who they're at and there's institutions that they've chosen to fight alongside and, and with that are embedded in the state. They understand the conditions here. And this all is, all these conditions are a creation of Israel and the state, right? And then this is just a response that comes out of it. So if you're truly on the side of the oppressed, it is absolutely useless to denounce any aspect of this resistance at this point in time. There's even just the reality that if you don't like Hamas, you don't like the ideology that's behind that, the best way to get the Palestinian people to reconsider or to think in terms beyond Hamas is to give them the freedom and the egalitarian rights to develop their own society in a way that's not under constant and complete oppression and destruction. I'm not saying anything about Hamas, but it's just, even by that same mindset, the solution seems to be very similar. So I was just, uh, I, I started this earlier when you were talking about this. This is slightly changing, slightly changing topic, but I was looking at the, the New York Times. I don't have a subscription to New York Times, but uh, someone in my family does, which I will use. And I was looking at the Wayback Machine where you can look at, you know, articles from different periods of time. And I searched Algeria, thinking of the Algerian uh, struggle to become uh, free from the colonial rule. And I found an article from 1959. And I just want to read just the two first two paragraphs so you can see how they immediately are framing this in the exact same way as we see now. The headline is Tragedy in Algeria. And it says, quote, the struggle for Algeria has a quality of desperation which is painful to watch. The latest incident, the ambush slaying of two young Frenchmen and a 16-year-old girl and the rioting at their funerals is typical. This is the case where extremists call the tune. One need not doubt that a vast majority of Frenchmen and many Muslims want Algeria to remain French, but they would favor compromise, concession, patience, and moderation like the average person's anywhere the diehards, the fanatics, the men willing to give their lives for the cause are always a small minority, but they are always the decisive factor. And then it goes into additional descriptions of the uh, murdering of Frenchmen. So you want to know the, how papers in America describe any struggle? It's like this. So let me guess, they hand ring a lot about the, the murders of the Frenchmen, but don't mention at all any violence that was going on to the Algerians you know, at the French's hands. Before that, uh, let's see. It's a very short article. There's only three more paragraphs after this, but it's basically saying that there's no change in policies. And there's they talk about the ultras um, holding on to French Algeria and fighting for independence and wanting prosperity. But then it basically says, well, it's basically that they should have just called this article at what cost. Mm. <laughs> and I found a couple other ones similar, you know, the late 1950s, 58, that have a very similar headline. Chaos in Algeria. Open Algeria, question mark. So. Yeah, the other narrative that I'd really like to tackle is that I think most Americans think that this is just going to be a pretty open and shut case for Israel to then take over. And they, like, they just literally don't imagine it's going to go any other way. And the idea that this is going to lead to further conflict, that it's not going to turn out in Israel and the U.S.'s favor, that this is 
probably more than likely going to put us into a World War III situation. Um, what I seem to be hearing is that Iran joining in would be the dividing line, uh, let alone any kind of Chinese or Russian intervention. I don't know. How many other colonial struggles do you think the West had that same level of arrogance for? Just thinking that there's no way this is going to go any other way but in our favor uh, may require a little more heavy-handedness than we've used up to this point, but it's in the bag. And then the underdogs end up winning. Like, I feel like... That's why, like, Evan, props to you for finding that article that quickly. That was, like, really impressive. But I think it requires a lot more... Like, I want to take a week and, like, try to see what I can find to see, like, before and afters. Like, see these same media outlets talk about yeah. the violence struggle and then see what they say after the fact when they flip sides. Like, was it you, Nick, saying that earlier in the chat? Like, these liberals will flip and then say that they were always on the side of the Palestinians to begin with. Um, yeah, down the line. When they were hand-wringing and pearl-clutching about, <laughs> oh, but they used violence, and I can't condone that. We have to condemn Hamas. We have to condemn all the actually effective forces um, as strongly as possible, even even though we're literally paying to murder the civilians. Yeah. And I guess what I'm saying is, like, when you meet people like that that have at least come out to the street or organizations that have come out to the street to, you know, march at some level you know, risk their bodies again, seeing all the repression, right? Again, I don't want to like overemphasize that, but when you see that kind of happen, I don't want to fall into a place of like shaming them for their line being incorrect at that moment in time. But I think the onus is on, you know, the Palestinian youth movement, the Jewish voices for peace, PSL, et cetera, et cetera, all these people that are organizing these marches, right. To continue the movement, through education in some ways, right? So like, again, advance the line, advance the political thought, you know, such that like, okay, they came out to this, but that's not the end all be all, right? Because we've seen movements before where all this energy gets out into the streets and then it dissipates, right? And it's not attached to kind of any advancement of political thought or sharpening of the political line, advancing of the political struggle at all, you know? And I think that there's an opportunity here to take it a step further, especially when we see like Starbucks United putting out a statement in solidarity with Palestine. Chris Small is talking about it. You know, like we can see the beginnings of these connections. And I think there's a real opportunity here. I think I'm noticing in this conversation, there's a lot of blanket statements being made about liberals and going back and forth. And I think it just would do us some benefit to really think beyond the writers of the New York Times as being somehow representative of the people. Yes, we know the writers of the New York Times are going to say one thing, and then five years from now, they're going to publish the exact opposite, and it's going to be completely shameless, and it's going to be ridiculous. But that doesn't mean that Joe Blow that lives down the street here hasn't the entire time thought, wow, what's going on? Israel's pretty screwed up. And they all of a sudden see an opportunity to say that publicly without being demonized by their friends and colleagues. So... While it might look like on the surface that, you know, there's this liberal flipping and flopping back and forth between the literal 50 people that they have elected to the Senate and the five major newspapers, there's still millions of them out there that really are, you know, I don't want to say principled, but have values that are relatively consistent. It's the sort of joke that what's the most popular political party in the United States? It's don't vote. They're not interested in following the ideology of either party. So that just gets to the point of, we don't want to say condescendingly, like, where were you last week? It's like, well, maybe they were working 80 hours a week and they didn't have time to get off and join the march. Maybe they didn't think about it that critically because they have two kids to feed. Maybe their mother's in the hospital. There's other reasons for them 
to have not engaged until this moment. Yeah, I think for some people, it's uh, you said it, Levi, in in part of feeling more comfortable to say something that maybe before was kind of an unpopular position to say. I I definitely speaking for myself is I, I haven't said that as much about you know pro Palestinian um, independence in the past, in part for my own fear of you know family and friends and. I think at this point it's it's time to stop that. But I think for people who maybe are just like you said, just random person, you know, at your office or someone who is telling me that at their work people are talking about it. Um, a friend of mine who has been on my podcast, he's an EMT in New York, and he said that people at work are talking about how fucked up what Israel is doing right now. He said they never have spoken about this ever in any of the time, and they're very conservative, but they're even looking at this and saying, "Shit, these guys are being pretty terrible." So I think that it is reaching people to the point of uh, becoming a, a part of the conversation that didn't exist before. And I, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah, just to give a, a personal anecdote, um, at the university I worked at, I was relatively considered to be a pretty middle-of-the-road liberal guy. And that was more or less because I'm not going to get into an argument with the head of the department over whether or not I think her voting for Hillary Clinton is a good idea, because I also understand that she controls my funding. There are reasons for people to not speak up that are very material, and we have to keep that in mind. There's lots of reasons that people are going to go back and forth publicly, even if, because, what was it, um, over 50% of people at some point believed that it was appropriate for the BLM movement to burn down that police station. I mean, people in general, once they get the material facts, they tend to sympathize with people that are claiming oppression. It's just the fact is, those facts are really hard to get coherently. And I think to a point that Nick was making earlier, it's really easy to get bogged down in infighting. So when they're coming to us for the facts and they see us quibbling with, you know, name the latest liberal who's slipping up, they're not really that invested in our project of owning whatever politician is screwing up this week. They're looking for the information. And it's yeah. fun to make fun of the Democrats, and it's easy. Um, but I don't know that that's the most productive thing we can be doing. But I do think that has a part to play. I mean, because I, part of this has to be exposing the hypocrisy, the, I'm trying to think of the correct word here, the hypocrisy and basically the, the fraudulent nature of a lot of these people, right? Especially when you look at somebody in that party as a whole, it's like, if you come out because you care about these values, take a look at these people that are claiming to be on the progressive end. They do not ascribe to this at all, and they do not actually, you know, any position that they support does not actually support a fundamental change to their relationship. It will not address the situation over here, right? So, I mean, I do think it's important to call out and shit on people like fucking John Fetterman as an example, you know what I mean? But again, from a very principled place to say, look, I know that you might have got bought into his progressive aesthetic at some point in time, right? But look at what he's saying now. We're calling the ceasefire, like, basically the liberal bare minimum on, like, a very humanitarian level again. And that's the most charitable reading of that. There could be the more cynical of, hey, let's just stop this, get them back to brunch, let this project continue on, maybe it more quietly, we'll get, like, a Bennett in here who's not as, like, maybe who's not as, like, divisive as Netanyahu, just as an example, right? But, like, that guy can't even do that. He said, now is not the time for a ceasefire. Like, is this who you want representing, you know, your political 
progressivism right now, even if you're not fully detached from the Democratic Party. I mean, you got to be able to do better than that. Like, reject that guy. And I don't want to hear about, oh, but what about Oz? No, fuck you. I'm not dealing with any of this bullshit anymore. Nick, to your point on uh, getting people to realize the, the sham of electoralism and the hypocrisy of the people that are supposedly representing the progressive wing of the constituency, um, and then they just never in practice do. I was just listening to today's episode of the Anti-Empire Project, and they were talking about the revolutionary times that Lenin himself lived in and wrote about, and he was, again, shitting on Kautsky and talking about all these class collaborators, and one of the distinctions that they were talking about was how one of uh, Lenin's opponents was pointing out that there was a, a revolutionary moment, but the revolution didn't happen, and it didn't work out in favor of the working class, and so therefore it wasn't a revolutionary moment. And Lenin's like, no, there are revolutionary situations all the time. There are revolutionary moments and opportunities constantly. Uh, that doesn't mean that there is a working class that is able and ready to take control of that, to take the opportunity right. and use it to their advantage, and then also take control of the government and form something else. Um, and they go in depth describing a bunch of different examples when different working parties were formed and were openly communist parties, supposedly revolutionary Marxist parties, but didn't feel they had the confidence or the ability to form a new government and were even like dared by that government in power to do so. They said like, look, you've made demands. We can't, this, the soldiers will side with you if you, if you stage a revolution and then ended up kind of adopting a lot of the tenets of the communist program and then framed it as like a gift from the government rather than something that was won through class struggle. And so it was a clever way to sort of pervert it. And it worked for a little bit, but in the end, it did not obviously resolve in the contradictions. It didn't last. Um, but it's definitely something to think about. And I thought it was a really, I don't know if they planned it or if it just happened to work out that uh, in their series that they started talking about this revolutionary moment and Lenin's opinion on it. But I thought it was very relevant. And all I can think of is like, imagine if we had the revolutionary energy of the, the 2020 uprisings and all the, the riots in the streets while also making these demands of the government to stop funding this genocide of Palestinians. Um, you would actually see, like, there's no world that you can tell me that would not be a more material force to use to our advantage to actually get the government to stop funding a fucking genocide in our names. Yeah, and absolutely. And I mean, that's part of the point that I wanted to make earlier as well, is that like, as far as it may seem, like there's a lot of people that will, you know, it's Levi's point, there's a lot in people's minds here, you know, about just getting through the day, getting fed, getting their kids taken care of, et cetera, et cetera, right? But at a fundamental level, the struggle of the Palestinian people is the struggle of the worldwide proletariat at a really fundamental level, right? I mean, and again, we can just talk about the example of the U.S., right? All of this poverty, all of this lack of education, no health care, right? But they've got billions and billions of dollars to send to prop up this fucking fascist regime, this fascist apartheid regime, which is genociding people in Gaza as we speak, right? I mean, again, like you have to recognize these struggles as connected at some level. There's, again, very, there's stratifications, there's different national contexts that you have to take into account. But I mean, we as Marxists have been right all along that the struggle against imperialism is the struggle of the international proletariat. Have you guys ever heard of the three and a half percent rule? Yeah, that's what oh, the three percenters. Is that like the three percenters? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Can you fill me in on that? Yeah, the three oh. percenters, they're like those fucking right wingers who have those logos in the back of their pickup trucks. And they literally base their entire ideology around the idea that it only takes 
of the population to be armed and militant and dedicated to overthrow the government in their favor. And that's kind of the, that's as far as they think it through. They don't think about, I mean, they're obviously just fucking fascists, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like that concept is actually based on a certain sociological reality. So it is considered about 3.5% is about how many people you need to be on the street in order to foment, you know, like it starts to cascade after that point, one direction or the other. And I think the biggest example that's ever used is the Iranian revolution, that as soon as 3% of the population started getting out on the streets, America pulled out. They stopped funding the Shah. They didn't fix, come in to swoop in because they saw this is too big. We can't get those 3% back in the, the doors. We have to slowly you know, st- um, suffocate them out over time to get that 3% back on our side. And all that's to say that it doesn't need to be a 100% engaged population out on the street. But once people see that others are breaking that taboo, are starting to talk in a certain way, they're feeling more and more comfortable with continuing that momentum. And I think that's part of why we see these sort of release valve um, actions by political people, that they want to do everything in their power to prevent that from happening. They want to get people back to brunch. They want to put the lid back on the pot before it gets to that terminal level. And to me, that's kind of hopeful that it doesn't really take an entire civilization to turn around, that people will stop following the rules if they believe it's going to be to their benefit or to the benefit of society. You know, just as an anecdote, I was talking to somebody from the... So Pittsburgh has a sister city with Matanzas in Cuba. And I was talking to this older organizer who's been to Matanzas, who's been to Cuba. And she was just telling me about her experiences talking to like regular people. And there's just regular people there, regular dudes that just want to, you know, work on their cars and live their own life. And I think she said something that one said something to her to the effect of like, oh, those communists always trying to change the world and make things better and that they're so driven and they're so focused on it. But I think that speaks to the fact that like even in like a communist country, not everybody's completely engaged politically. You know what I mean? There is like this subgroup of people in the vanguard that are pushing this shit, you know. At whatever stage you're at, but just to that point that even in where it's already been done, there's people that are not that engaged in the political struggle at all times, you know? Levi, I thought you were going to make fun of the concept of the 3%, because um, basing it on like what the American involvement in suppressing, who would you say was the Iranian revolution? Uh, the American lack of involvement in suppressing the Iranian revolution. Yeah, I just feel like that's a very different situation. Like the idea that three percenters, um, because it's perfect for them, it's perfect for right wingers to take a concept and just take the smallest part of it and apply it so faultily to a situation, um, but in a way that benefits their their LARPing <laughs> and their masculine fantasies. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think the way that it's being misunderstood by this right wing, and I don't want to even pretend to get into their minds, is that they think like, oh, if we can convince three percent of the population to believe in this it doesn't matter if the 97 percent of the population hates it we're going to take over it's like no that's that's not what it means Mm. you're not going to force the population to agree with something it's more or less getting three percent of the population that already generally finds this abhorrent actually voicing their disgust and it's the sort of like showing the the general population the information that we know has been going on since the founding of the state of israel to people last month before this was on people's minds it would have disgusted them if they were willing to look at it and now that it's in front of them they are having to contend with it and that 
percentage of the population that's engaged is going up and up. It's not that their feelings or their morality has suddenly changed. It's just now they're getting information. More importantly, to our point as Marxists, like what the lesson we should take from that is that you only need 3% of the population to be engaged to overthrow, uh, to meaningfully affect change to the benefit of the working class, let's say. But like you're saying, Levi, the right wing and incorrect position is to think that you can do this with a message that the population does not agree with overall. Because they also kind of generally think that the majority of the population agrees with them and hates the government. When I think most people are just kind of ambivalent as long as the government leaves them alone and lets them do what they want to do in their personal lives. Um, and which, for the most part, I guess it does for middle class people. And then the success of the BLM movement was that they found a message that did resonate with the majority of people to the point that it did get probably 3% of the people out in the streets, which is the real message to take away from that 3% sociological meme, like you're saying. And I guarantee you that the 3% of the right wingers are not understanding that the BLM movement was a grassroots 3% movement, like a, a real revolutionary movement. They just think it was a bunch of thugs and criminals smashing Starbucks windows. What you got, Nick? Yeah, I was just going to add in, like, make no mistake that the uprising that we're seeing now, the mass mobilizations we're seeing now, flow directly from the BLM and the George Floyd protests. There was a lot of people that got politically active, right? And maybe the institutions weren't there for them at that point, and maybe they're not even there yet. But there's a lot of people that, you know, some joined, some fell out, but there's more people that are involved in left-wing anti-colonial, anti-imperialist, social justice organizations right now as a result of those uprisings. So there is a through line here. These are not discrete events. In the same way that we talk about, you know, the history of Palestine, not starting two weeks ago, the history of movements in left-wing movements in the U.S., you know, despite the ups and downs, the peaks and valleys don't start either. And we're in this moment right now where it's rising. And that is connected explicitly to this. I mean, that, and that that's just speaking in generalities. That doesn't say anything of the historical ties that have been drawn by black liberation movements in the U.S. here to the Palestinian movement explicitly as a decolonial project. I, I think what you're describing is exactly why Sean Fain feels like he can quote Malcolm X when talking about the need for solidarity and union drives. Because people are actually pretty receptive to that message. Even if they're not conscious, if you ask them, they wouldn't maybe know how to articulate international solidarity. They still understand it on a visceral level when it's presented to them. They're still disgusted when they see a 10-year-old Palestinian woman crying because her school has been bombed. These aren't I think as uh, Evan was saying earlier, these are ways to get to people's true moral positions on world systems rather than tell them, you know, what do you think about capitalism or what do you think about capital? It's what do you think about the fact that this person's school has been bombed by bombs that were launched by Israel and paid for by your tax dollars? Do you have a problem with that? And I generally think people really do have a problem with that when it's presented to them in the same way that they're interested in what Malcolm X has to say when it's articulated as worker solidarity. Well, the, uh, to what you were saying, Nick, is these, these organizations like the Jewish Voices for Peace, they're seeing massive amounts of people join their network. You know, they have all these chapters across the U.S. And I don't think that people would be joining these organizations if they didn't get some taste of it during the BLM protest then. Maybe they were in an organization. Maybe they just went out a bunch of times locally, but they didn't join a party. They didn't do anything maybe beyond that. 
So I think these could get people to give them that push. Maybe they, they see these. Um, and, and I think that the, you're right, though. The tying the labor movement in the United States to these liberation movements, I think, is a really big and good tactic because it does show that international solidarity that I think most people probably don't realize exists or that they may even have. Yeah, and like the other aspect of this, Mike, you mentioned that we're potentially on the cusp of a World War III, or at least a huge conflagration in the Levant, West Asia broadly, at, at least. I mean, in this line of thinking, the Western imperialist class has an understanding of the international context. I just pulled up an article from Fox News. McConnell calls China, Russia, Iran the new axis of evil that the U.S. must deal with. He said, this is an emergency. Okay. So again, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, right? Like they understand that this is changing fundamentally, right? Their interests on a global scale are being threatened, right? And this is just one piece of it, you know, and it's rightfully taking center stage at this moment because of the situation in Gaza, right? But the Ukraine situation is still going on. We just did a nuclear test in Nevada, Right, because I think Russia began nuclear testing again. Um, I don't know how China is going to factor into all this. Iran, as we talked about last time, has been looming in the background, you know, the whole time as well. But you know, <laughs> and then we talk about first this tragedy, then as farce, they're recycling all the same language from the Iraq War, the axis of evil, right? And I, I don't, God, that must be the fourth or fifth time that they've been able to pull that one out of their hat. But like, I am hopeful that. It doesn't seem like everybody's buying it. It does seem like a lot of people are seeing through the propaganda. And there's people that are, you know, hook, line, and sinker that just imbibe Fox News and mainstream media all day. But I do think people are seeing like, hey, I've seen this one before. And that makes me a little bit hopeful. But it, the other side is, is that the U.S. ruling class knows that their interests on a global scale are threatened here broadly, not just by this, but by a bunch of other stuff as well. Um, speaking of what you just said, Nick, recycling the same memes, like what I just put in the group chat here, um, it is a, it's the New York Post, and it says, blood libel. Islamic terrorists killed their own people in hospital explosion, then falsely blamed Israel. Can you believe this shit? Like, to say the blood libel thing on front page in a huge header like that, and then use it in defense of the Jewish fascist apartheid ethnostate uh, to talk about Muslims that way. Is that called projection? You should have seen, and it, I, what what led me to actually see that New York Post headline is uh, someone in uh, my building was reading the uh, the New York Post and had it open to like the center section about this, and he's tried to like open to have a conversation about it with me, saying like, "Oh, I can't believe Biden's giving money to terrorists, you know, to to uh, Hamas for aid," and I just literally said like, "I I I, I gotta go." <laughs> Not having this conversation, it would not have gone gone well. And then I looked up the at the issue, and it was this one. This um, you're right. A lot of this is very much projection. I mean, I feel like I'm gonna wear that word out, especially now with what's going on. It just yeah. I mean, that really when you sent me that, Evan. Uh, even I screenshotted it as soon as you sent it to me. It's like your caption was right there saying this shit is sick. Because like I have no other words for that. Like I'm just. Beyond speechless. I'm speechless at the level of propaganda. The, I mean, it's just so, it, it feels like trite to quote the Malcolm X quote, you know, if you're not careful about having you root for the villains and condemning the, the oppressed people. 
um obviously I'm, I'm misquoting him but you get the idea like it's just so blatant it's so incredibly blatant and people are still kind of regurgitating it and it's like yeah i don't i don't know what to do i don't have any like original takes that, like i said you guys are in the group chat i don't know what i could possibly say about the situation that all the other leftist podcasts uh are already saying better yeah and i i can't think of anything better to do than just like link all the palestinian pages that i know of on instagram who are actually speaking to like what's actually going on on the ground uh linking to the organizations that you can donate to like things that do material benefit for the people being affected yeah i just feel it feels weird to like just talk on the internet while you're being forced to fund a genocide i don't know yeah no it does and i guess that's why i tried to open with like how to how to look at building a movement within this that can help as well you know yeah i'll cut this but i did at least uh i quit my job like i think like a day or two before the whole thing started so at least now i'm not paying taxes right so (laughs) (laughs) you're absolved brother yeah i don't know i don't think they need your taxes (laughs) just print the money is that what you're saying (laughs) <laughs> yeah i mean this is deficit spending at its best yeah the bombs will still get manufactured and dropped yeah i just got a kick out of this uh idf post on instagram that said israel and gaza explained like we got the explainer infographic from the idf um <laughs> the first slide says in 1947 the un partition plan proposed dividing the british mandate into two independent states a jewish state and an arab state we said yes but the arabs said no a war broke out between the newly born state of israel against seven arab armies it took two years but israel won gaza wasn't part of israel it was under egyptian rule this is what my friends think happened i literally got into this argument last friday with a friend of mine saying like well the 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 Arabs said no to the two state plan, so that means uh, too bad for them. And like the reality is, is that the Arabs voted against it. The Arabs that were represented at the UN either abstained or voted against the partition plan. But the Palestinians specifically had no voice at this, at the division of their own state. Surprisingly, I don't know. Just funny, just funny that like they felt the need to put out like this infographic explainer. But whatever. It's all fucking lies. And looking at all the comments on that, it looks like it's being eviscerated online as well. Like, isn't the, the top comments ask, like, where's the Nakba? Well, yeah. see, this kind of post, in my perception, tells me that they're losing the hearts and minds of people around the world. And the, 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 the average person can see through what's going on. And this is really just like a defense for trying to say that they're right and you know uh everything was legally done by the book you know we just became a nation against all odds against seven other arab nations and this tells me i feel like all of the propaganda during the iraq war was built because they knew that they were they needed it to uh convince people and now they're trying to do that again and it's not working that gives me some hope yeah i mean you said across the world i mean the global South knows what's up for a long time. I think that yeah. the, uh, I think it's the West that's finally getting on board. And I'm distinguishing between some of the, you know, governments that have been installed and what we would consider the global South and the people broadly as well. Um, but I would like to think that the propaganda is losing its effect and people are slowly waking up. And I'm sure that there are more and more people who are 
finding anti-imperialism and then finding global south news and realizing that it's like more sensible just has like more uh comprehensible takes on world affairs than the u.s media but um i also just wonder sometimes like how many people do you think remember sos cuba or have like a good take on what that even was <laughs> if you ask them to like look back on it now but go ahead levi sorry about that <clears throat> i was just going to say that on the international front if you look at ireland's position they've never really faltered on this and then on the sort of propaganda front those first few days after the outbreak of violence uh, or the escalation of violence on the palestinians it really did look like this was going to go very poorly i mean there was a lot of you know bowing to the flag and saying israel forever but a lot of that has really quieted down um at least in my circles people are not actively supporting israel anymore people are actually coming out and questioning palestine it's pretty trite and i shared this with evan and nick but there's a liberal flag company called flags for good that for years has stated that they you know produce flags for indigenous rights for oppressed people but they never had a flag for palestine and i would about once a month or about that time would complain to them that you know if you actually believe in any of this stuff you need to print a palestinian flag but they never did and they did it on the 18th they decided to print a palestinian flag and this is a liberal organization they had to have a explainer stating that their initial desire was to print an Israeli flag and that they were glad that they didn't, but it's better late than never. People are coming around to this position enough that a liberal flag company believes that they should be producing a flag for the Palestinian people and selling it in mass to people. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of silly to look at consumption as a way of propaganda not working, but it's, it is a measure. I mean, they're also doing this from... They believe that they'll sell these flags, you know, looking at it from a purely right. commercial standpoint, it wouldn't make that decision if they didn't think that people wanted them. And they're obviously, after you told me about this flag company originally not selling it, I sent them a message saying, hey, how come you're not selling the Palestinian flag? And I'm not saying that I was a straw that broke the camel's back, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, they, but they do. I mean, I, I think there is a tide that I think people that they're, they clearly see they wouldn't do this otherwise. What we have to hope for is that it's not going to be a release valve sort of reaction. This isn't going to sputter out the way that people put Black Lives Matters flags in their front lawns in the suburbs and have actual no material change that comes about from this, where the NBA will paint that in their sidelines and we'll all go back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, can I reference real quick into the podcast episode? Go check out the collab episode that Upstream did with uh, Brett and Allison from Red Menace. And they talked about what is to be done. And they talked exactly about how these revolutionary movements rise up and then seem to sputter out and why that happens. Like exactly that pattern is talked about and what is to be done and how you avoid that. And the short answer is a fucking vanguard party as always. It's Leninism. It's fucking Marxism, Leninism. You have to always be organizing so that when these moments happen, you will be ready to take advantage of them. Because as much as people like to think that, you know, they've heard the revolution will not be televised and they think that that's a really clever way and they think they understand that. What they're not understanding is that, like, there's revolutionary moments right now. Like, right now, there's one in Palestine. There's going to be one probably in Taiwan. There's been one in Ukraine. Um, these are all revolutionary moments, and people who are ready to take advantage of them do to their to their benefit. Um, sometimes, a lot of times, they happen to be reactionaries because those tend to be the fucking armed to the teeth people <laughs> in the at the time. Uh, it just kind of happens to work that way. But that just speaks to why you have to have like armed and militant vanguard parties just ready to go. Because again. 
the revolution that, when it takes place in the, in the U.S. is not going to be widespread. It's going to be a lot of neoliberals still going to get coffee and go to work in their city that's fine, while the, the next city over is like experiencing environmental collapse. And there are right-wing gangs running around in like the back of pickup trucks just gunning down brown people and calling them looters. And no accountability whatsoever. That has happened at every single environmental disaster. Hurricane Katrina... And since uh, before that, like that is the pattern. And that unfortunately is what like fascist vanguard parties look like because they're taking advantage of these sadly revolutionary moments that capitalism provides in crisis. And this is going to continue happening in more and more frequency. Yep. I mean, it's a trite historical point, but there was a lot of different governments that fomented out of the chaos that was World War One. A lot of them were fascist. A lot of them were communist. There was no real predefined movement that was going to win out in any of these nations. Like, who would have believed that Tsarist Russia was going to become the premier and first socialist country? These things happen because of innumerable contingencies and people being prepared to take advantage of them. And we're living in one of those moments right now. We don't know where it's going to be. Yeah. but <clears throat> And what I'm saying is, is that, like, those movements and we're we're all saying this at some level right but like you know you look back at those movements and you think oh wow like there was people prepared and they took advantage of the movement right and they had this amazing revolution and everything but like there are so many little actions that go into being prepared for that moment so many little things showing up to a rally helping you know build placards right so that you can get your message across at that thing right helping organize educational events that, you know, pull people in so that they're more confident and uh, standing behind a solid political line on a thing. You know what I mean? It's like there's, it's, it's quantity into quality, right? Little, I mean, that's Stalin. I mean, going back all the way, it is little quantitative changes that ultimately turn into a qualitative shift, into something that looks completely different, but there's all these little actions that go into it as well. So don't take for granted that, you know, if you can go do something, do something. It's all in, in service of the broader movement. It bears repeating, but it's somebody, the great men don't make history. They're just in position to take advantage of their position to push history forward from a movement that's behind them. None of us are going to be Lenin, I assume, but many of us can be Bolsheviks. You know who are the, re the real revolutionaries? It's the mutual aid orgs that are passing around the same $250 amongst each other. <laughs> They're going to lead the Vanguard Party. That's right. <laughs> no, I'm just fucking right. I mean, I love mutual aid organizations. And as much as I shit on anarchists, like, they are doing, like, real practice. Like, I love when people have charitable organizations when they help people on the ground, when they do good works. But it just also does make me sad to think that, like, yeah, it can boil down to a bunch of poor people passing around money to each other while they're rich. Uh, like, yeah, go ahead do that scrape scrape with each other you bunch of plebs like they have to be laughing all the way to the bank i mean it just like i don't know i don't want to get into too much about like the anarchist communist thing tonight but like no i, I don't, know, I don't know why i brought that up but then no, to be no, no, no. Like, and cynical but like <laughs> like no I, I think there's a point to make there that like like you said it is good work that people are doing and you're affecting people within that community so i think it can be like this and you know what i mean like they don't have to be necessarily mutually exclusive things like you want people to buy in and see that you actually give a shit about them and mutual aid is one way of doing that you know so 
it doesn't especially in certain moments like these people with on the broad left it need not like and even if you've got like a division between um you know an anarchist ideology and a socialist ideology or a communist ideology like especially at certain points in history and i would say that we're living at a point in history right now in the u.s given the conditions and like the relative weakness of the left movement that we're trying to build up i mean those things need not be hostile antagonistically contradictory positions at this point in time i would say like let's get through that like we can worry about the future fucking way later we don't know what it's going to look like but like people doing mutual aid on the street they're not my enemy like in, the, in this moment in time they're not my fucking enemy you know no i'm obviously messing around no just, no no no. I'm, i know you are but i was gonna ask if anybody had any closing points because um yeah obviously we spent the whole episode talking directly or indirectly about palestine and I can't think of anything else better to do than, like I said, link a bunch of organizations that you can donate to in the show notes because there is no benefit better than material benefit. If you have any money to spare and you can donate it to Palestinians to help them, uh, not to Hamas, like Brandon's joke that we were paranoid about leaving in the last live episode, uh, I think it was fine. Obviously, it is a joke. You don't want to donate directly to Hamas because you will fucking get the feds at your door. That's not a good idea. <laughs> and if you find a way to do to donate to Hamas, like, I mean... I don't know how you would even do that because that's fucking lockdown tight for good reason. Like you're not allowed to do that shit, so don't do it. <laughs> we would never suggest, uh, unironically, that you do that. So that was for there are also humor purposes. To be clear, <laughs> there are also some sites. Someone was sending me um, a couple days ago uh, a few operating uh, Palestinian companies that are selling products. Uh, one of them being. I'm blanking on what it was. It wasn't the soap, the thing that I've seen like advertising for, but there's a few where they're donating that money to, you know, specific causes. So mm-hmm. if you can't or don't want to donate specifically to a, a place, you can donate or buy things that will be donated. And come to DC November 4th with the Answer Coalition, Palestinian Youth Movement, among many others. I've been seeing a bunch of the stickers for that march all over now. Okay. Um, just on signs. So I like to see it gonna be huge <laughs> gonna be huge a lot of people on the street i'm gonna get my bible to hold it upside down <laughs> <laughs> all right well, unless you guys have anything else we can wrap it there i'll let you guys go you all good all good i think we'll together appreciate it thanks guys yep thanks for having me later so, adios peace on us. there it is <laughs>